Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, and today we have a very special episode for you. A uh, little bit different from what we normally do on Lockhead on Marketing. We're going to have a free-form, long conversation with the legendary author of Super Consumers, Eddie Yoon. And... Um, I know this sounds corny, but I adore this guy. Um, we've gotten to know each other now over a couple of years, and we've collaborated on a number of things. And um, uh, he's incredible. He's the category design and category creation to the Fortune 1000. Uh, he's written more on category for HBR, Harvard Business Review, than anybody on the planet. And I'm glad to call him a friend and a collaborator. And we just wrote an article for HBR called Five Ways to Stimulate Cash Flow in a downturn. And if you want to, um, if you want to read it, uh, check out the show notes for this episode and uh, there'll be a click through right there to it. So what we're going to do on this episode is essentially bring that article to life. And uh, of the five ideas we're going to center, we sort of flow around uh, naturally in a conversation, but um, we're going to focus on bringing two big ideas to light, uh, how to be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous at the same time. Now, my friends at NetSuite are the category queens and kings of cloud business systems. And uh, in uncertain times, visibility and control matter. So to schedule your free demo right now and get your free guide, Managing Business Uncertainty, go to netsuite.com slash different to get your free guide and set up your free product tour now. That's netsuite.com slash different. And uh, my friends at Splunk are the leaders in data to everything. They help you bring data to every question, every decision, and every action. And staying on top of the facts and data have probably never been more important than they are right now. Visit splunk.com slash D2E, as in data to everything. That's splunk.com, D, the number two, E. Now, hey-ho, let's go. This is Lockheed on Marketing, the podcast that helps you develop the lens for what makes legendary marketing legendary. Hosted by Christopher Lockhead, three-time CMO, godfather of category design, and a high school dropout, who the Marketing Journal calls one of the best minds in marketing, and The Economist calls off-putting to some. All right, Eddie Yoon. <laughs> So listen, you and I have been around for a while. We've been to the show, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And we've seen some, we're still trying to figure out what the official, def, uh, do you know what the word for the multiple of crisis is? <laughs> I don't actually, Christ, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Dushka said she thinks it's just crisis, like like fish or, or the be. plural of moose is moose. Yeah. But there's part of me that wants to say Christi. <laughs> yeah. I, that's where I went. So, yeah. <laughs> so regardless of how you say it, we've been through some, some gnarly ones, but, yeah. uh, nothing like this, right? It's, it's, uh, I, I just feel deep sadness and concern right now for all the small businesses and large, you know, it's, it's just one of these, um, I, I think a lot of innovation will come through it as it always does in adversity. But, um, this is one of those, like, I can't wait to be on the other side of it. Well, and of course, uh, and you and I have spent a lot of time talking about this, all those numbers that we hear, on, we see on the internet or we hear on TV and the daily briefings and the like, um, of course, we all know those aren't numbers, right? 
Well, I, I think it's just the when you hear about you know bodies piling up that New York City has to use Central Park potentially to bury. You know, it's it's just one of these like, yeah. Th- there's there's no metric that can help you forget that there's a body and there's family and relationships that come with it and stuff. So, yeah, and of course we've all lost people, and uh, this is an unbearable loss. Yep. 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 So. You know, we wanted to talk today, of course, you and I have been doing a lot of thinking and researching and so forth for uh, the book we're working on. And it seems like that these two ideas that that we've been working on together uh, have really started to resonate with people in this time of crisis, this, this concept of as a business, as a marketer, as a CEO, as a business leader, as an entrepreneur, et cetera, there's, we have a unique opportunity now to be um, radically generous, best we can. And that can be financially, but there's lots of ways we can be generous. And thoughtfully aggressive, that we have to be thoughtful, but we have to be aggressive. Some of, some of our businesses are threatened, uh, their livelihoods, their existence is threatened. And you know most businesses are down in meaningful ways. And so as business leaders, we gotta navigate through this best we can. And you and I actually started working on these concepts pre COVID nineteen, mm-hmm. but um, they seem to really be resonating with people now. Yeah, no, I, I think the I remember we talked about how uh, uh, one of the visuals I have in my head is the the uh, Pixar book Ed Catmull's uh, Creativity. I think it was um, where he talks about how uh, uh, people think that functional areas like sales and marketing are in a tug of war, but they're really holding one another up in balance and that tension is important. And that's what I just love so uh, deeply about these two ideas of if you, you know, in, in a time of uncertainty and you don't know what's going to work. And, but I think if this idea is of, if you lean into being radically generous and thoughtfully aggressive at the same time, you're probably going to f- be fine throughout this. And I, I think, especially when you're in a crisis, you got to keep it simple. And I think these, these principles are not only simple, but they're uh, emotional, and I think that's the key part because you know sometimes in fight or flight, your brain doesn't always work, right? <laughs> so the emotions are what you can hold on to, and that's something that people can use to discern, hey, is this a radically generous thing or not? Am I being a chicken, or should I be more thoughtfully aggressive about it? Yeah, and it's fascinating. I had a conversation this morning with a group of entrepreneurs uh, who are uh, in the process of uh, launching a new category and a new product. And they, of course, had been planning this before C-19 came about. And as fate would have it, this new category and new product is actually, it was this is not what they intended it for at all, but it's actually a powerful new category uh, for uh, healthcare heroes mm-hmm. and for patients as well. And again, this is not where they were originally pointing it. And so... The conversation we had, they've sort of begun to realize as they sort of reimagine their new startup in this context that, wait a minute, they could actually make a very big difference here uh, on a number of dimensions for healthcare folks, uh, people working in the supply chain, and even patients themselves. And one of the questions that came up was, are we being shitty if we launch this at this time? Are people going to think we're opportunistic? Hmm. And what I shared with them, and I really want to get into this with you is, well, 
They would if you did it in a normal way, I think. But if you can be thoughtfully aggressive about designing and, and launching a new category and do it in a way that's radically generous, and but in a way that you you can still make some money, yeah. right? It's not making money's not bad. You you can't be gouging and, and you want to think real hard about what radical generosity means, right? You don't want to be somebody who's um, taking advantage of this in a negative way, but at the same time, uh, there are some businesses, there are some new things that fit into the solving some component of this problem. And they sort of were asking permission, like, is, is it okay to go do this? Mm-hmm. So uh, it led to some interesting discussions, but let me take a breather there and start to get your initial reaction. Well, I, I, I just think it's, um, that self-awareness is the thing that makes me feel comfortable. I mean, I don't know the context. I don't know the entrepreneurs. I don't know the category, but the self-awareness of, am I being, you know, uh, a bad actor in this by launching this, um, I think is the first sign of they're on the right track with it. As we've said, category creation and category design is the ultimate growth strategy. You should be doing it anyway. And you know what? There's no greater time to be doing it now when it's just clear the way that we are used to doing things, the categories that exist are not sufficiently safe or maybe even uh, will be relevant going forward and stuff. So uh, no better time to launch a new one. If you have that self-awareness, I think that's awesome. And, And I think the, I don't know if you were hinting at this a bit, but I have seen it where something, some things that if it's a product or service or category you're launching, turn slightly differently to a new audience or a new vertical can really take off in a way that I think is really powerful, right? And so you, you think about the little sachets that they sell toothpaste and shampoo in like India and you know some uh, developing countries when they can't buy the whole bottle and like, and those that little pouch um, packaging was how um, you know Justin Gold launched uh, Justin's uh, nut butters and confection. And it was a, a disposable pouch used for performance athletes or endurance bikers, you know, and he had a squeeze of almond butter in it. And that led to, you know, uh, the next gen Reese's peanut butter cups, but better quality ingredients, better tasting ones. And then eventually Hormel buying their $75 million run rate business for $275 million and stuff. So what same category repurposed in a slightly different direction and stuff. So, well, and, and look, there were companies using, and I'm sure they didn't use our language, but a, a radically generous and thoughtfully aggressive strategy, if I could call it mm-hmm. that, in the past, right? I mean, an, a, an yeah. example that people love is is Tom's shoes, right? Mm-hmm. And you buy one and they, they give a pair away. And, and these entrepreneurs I was talking to today, you know, we were talking about their cost of goods sold. And, um, and they were saying, look, it, it sort of Fs up our economic model. But you know what? We could actually, for some period of time, do a buy one and we'll donate one. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's a B2C product. And so if you're a consumer, you could buy one and they'll donate one to the healthcare heroes. So they're, go- they're going off on and working on that. And the other thing they're going to work on for their launch is if you're somebody who loves this new category, this new product, and you want to donate them to healthcare heroes, they're going to they're gonna figure out a way to make that super easy. And so, you know, it's when you ask yourself the question, what can we do to be thoughtfully aggressive 
managing our costs, yep. trying to come up with new ways to drive near-term revenue. Uh, a lot of companies, their forecasts, their pipelines, and therefore their sales are down you know, 50%, sometimes more. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to be super thoughtful about that, both on the cost and the, and the potential, and some marketing things we could do to maybe shore things up? And is there a way to be radically generous with our prospects, our customers, uh, of course, our employees? And it's, it, isn't it so interesting just by asking the question, how can we yeah. be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous? All of a sudden, you have entrepreneurs who were not thinking about, well, we could do a buy one, give one away. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it's, it's one of these things where I just think it's the beauty of it is you're doing the right thing. You'll feel good. You'll sleep at night. And if you even looked at it purely from a self-interest standpoint, it's probably a way cheaper method of uh, acquiring customers than, you know, a grand big poobah mass media marketing buy and the like, right? I mean, people, the the Tom Shoes example, um, you know, uh, the when when Reed Hastings uh, they first started to launch their own streaming content and they didn't follow the industry norm of windowing, where one episode a week, because you know, and they say, hey, we're just going to drop them all at the same time, and if you sign up binge watch it and cancel. Yeah, that's fine. You know, I, I'll live with that risk. And, you know, Wall Street thought they were morons for doing it and, you know, guess where they are now. And, but it, it is this kind of idea of, um, it's actually really good business strategy. It's very self-interested, ironically, to be selfless in this regard. And, um, uh, you know, and, and, you know, you can see it all the way throughout, like you, you see that, um, you know, the whole kind of 3G model where um, they're buying companies and being not just thoughtfully aggressive, but, you know, aggressive squared, right? Uh, taking cost out, but there's no radical generosity there, right? And there's a reason why they have to feast on the next acquisition to cut fat and the next one after that. Because, you know, once they've taken out the fat, they can't grow the companies anymore. Because there's no generosity there, there's no blood flowing there, um, and consumers kind of get, hey, you're there for the shareholders, um, and you're not really there for me, uh, why would I show you any loyalty for that? And it's interesting, uh, I've been saying this for a little while now, but I, I, it's, it became clear, sort of in the first couple innings of this, that um, what your brand does mm-hmm. now is going to affect your reputation and your brand and category value for many years to come. Completely, yeah. And we're all going to have to answer the question as individuals and as business people, uh, what did you do during C-19 to make a difference? Right, right. right. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we wrote about a bunch of examples, of course, in, in the HBR. Is there, is there one you want, there's one on my mind, but is there one you want to start with that, uh, that you f- think is a great example of these <laughs> yeah. ideas? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, you know, the, what, the, the very first one I think is near and dear to me just because I, I just think it's a great demonstration of the core principle of behind radical generosity is empathy with it. And the, what Hyundai did, in 2008, I, I just remember this was uh, the CMO was Joel Uwanek and who went on to uh, be the CMO of General Motors and the like. But, you know, the, the Hyundai Assurance Program was, I, I just thought, such an excellently thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous uh, strategy to say. And, and, and really, they got to the heart of it is, hey, um, financial recession is scary. You could lose your job. And if you do, we'll buy it back from you up to 7500 bucks. And you know, uh, 
I just thought it was, um, you know, such a bold move that cut through and I think gets to the heart of anyone, you know, buying a car. A lot of the times you buy a car so that you can work, right? I mean, it, it's one of these things where they understood that um, people buying a Hyundai, it's they aren't car guys necessarily kind of, you know, this is for fun or a toy. This is functional. It gets me to work so I can, I can earn a paycheck so I can feed my family. And so I, I think their ability to see all of that and drive to the heart and speak to that was amazing. And coupled with, I think, their 10-year, 100,000-mile uh, warranty program, um, you know, they, they were confident about their product. And that that's one of the things that I think is really clear to me is you can be radically generous when you know you've, you're, you're doing the right thing. You've made a good product. It stands up on its own. And you know what? If I get you in the car and you drive it, you'll see that it's good and you're getting good value for it. So I'm not scared to take a risk, be it with warranties, guarantees, or return policies, because I'm confident you're going to like it. And that I think that's the thing that I think is um, one of the key things behind being radically generous is that empathy and confidence. And, you know, obviously it, it's done a huge amount of uh, financial results for Hyundai back then. And they're reprising. And I think a lot of companies are doing some version of that now today, which is great. The big car companies. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been noticing the ads. and But interesting to your point, and uh, just from this is just my perception, but I think Hyundai was the first one out of the shoot with this this time. At least it was, yeah. it was the first one I noticed. Let me say that. And they were on my mind because, you know, you and I had been talking about how they had done this in the in the past. So that's sort of a big company example. Uh, one of my favorite uh, local examples is there's an entrepreneur here um, in Silicon Valley named Alex Holt. And uh, he's a former pro hockey player. He played in the Sharks organization. And uh, his family grew up in the, as rest, in the restaurant business. And so uh, his career was cut short because of an injury. And so he thought, okay, well, what am I going to do? So he opens a restaurant. And he niches down and creates a new category. And he calls the restaurant Flights. Because the aha, the insight that he has is that people today eat family style. So we like to share things when we go out. Like if the four of us were to go out, we might all sort of, you know, there's all that moment where you say, what are you yep. ordering? What do you, oh, that looks good. That looks good. And it, there's four of us and we want 12 things on the menu. So he noticed this family style dynamic, even at a lot of higher end restaurants. And then the other thing he noticed was people like wine pairings, people love cocktails. But if you order a cocktail, you know, you get a big drink and maybe if there's two or three that you want anyway. So imagine it's all tasting menu, mm, tasting drinks it. and yeah. they'll coordinate the food and the drinks. So it all goes anyway, that's the concept. And they took it to the max. You know, they dress up as flight attendants and <laughs> captains and shit and the, 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 all the decor and branding is all old school, you know, golden age of air travel kind of stuff. So they, they hammed it all up and made it fun, right? Anyway, mm -hmm. the thing takes off and he's got a bunch of restaurants and he opens a flagship in Vegas and he's going to start doing franchises and it's on fire, right? Bam, this happens. Amazing. And so what he realizes, Eddie, is he's toast. The whole thing's toast and who knows if he's going to be able to get it back. But in the very beginning days of this, he says, all right, well, what, what can I do? Mm. Well, I know how to make food. And I got a big parking lot in, in the so central part of my town, in this case, Los Gatos. Mm -hmm. Anyway, long story longer, he starts feeding people. Hashtag mm -hmm. feed the need. And now he's got sort of a drive-through 
almost like a food bank type mm. capability. And he's organized people and he's started the GoFundMe's and he's, he's organized other people in the restaurant business. And so here's a guy who literally has no idea whether or not he's going to have any kind of a business yeah. to return to. I mean, it's a just, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse until, and, and look, when we come back, how, how's it going to work in restaurants? And like he, he realized early I might have a business or I might have a big bag of burning dog shit, but what can I do now to make a difference? And so two things have happened. A, he is making a very huge difference. Mm-hmm. And B, guess how much PR he's gotten? Guess how much goodwill oh, yeah. he's built? Yeah, I can only imagine. So his businesses <laughs> may go bankrupt or with, yeah. I, I don't know what's going to happen, but what I do know is we we can we know what's going to happen mm-hmm. to Alex Holt at the end. Yeah. How's the community going to respond to him? Right. Totally. Totally. And if he's if he can revive the flights businesses, yeah. What are people going to do? Yeah. Well, you know, it, it it speaks to I think you you mentioned brands, right? I mean, uh, one of the uh, components, you know, a brand is a promise you make to your customers and your suppliers and your employees at some level, and. You know, people know that Alex is good for his word, uh, and, and above and beyond that. And I think, um, you know, it just like with all kind of friendships and relationships, right? It's it's when you're going through the fire, it's the ones that stick by you. That's that's who you know you can really count yes. on. And consumers are going to say the same thing. It's the brands that were there for me when it was really hard. I will ev- forever be grateful for that. I, I, I think it was. Um, oh, I'm trying to remember the book, but. Um, uh, uh, this one, I remember stories of uh, incredible brand loyalty. I think it was to either the Maytag brand or whatnot, but it was, it goes back to like an early childhood memory that this woman had about how, um, you know, her father worked at the company, how they treated him generously. And, you know, she, she didn't realize that she was like insanely loyal to the point of being irrational to the brand and stuff. Right. <laughs> you know, it's because, you know, um, I mean, generosity, I mean, people, you know, you think of all the commercials that are run where people don't remember what brand it was for. And that's the thing is that when you are radically generous, your brand and your, and, and that feeling is imprinted on your brain for the rest of your life. Um, especially when you are up a Creek and someone is there for you and stuff. So I I think whatever happens to Alex's current business flights and whatnot, I, I think he will be successful in the long run, no matter what he does and stuff. So and so it's an interesting situation with an entrepreneur backed into a corner, right? Yeah, yeah. And so let's talk about a couple of the other things that we um, that we wrote about. You know, one of the points we made in the HBR article is this this idea of accelerate innovation, right? So in the case of the startup I was talking to this morning, they were planning on launching later in the year. Now that they have sort of realized hey, this new thing they're going to, this carbodingulator could actually make a difference in the crisis. They're trying to get to market much more quickly. And so we really are advocating that if you have near-term innovations in your pipeline, Mm -hmm. that you ask some questions along these lines of how do we be thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous in the context of C-19. And um, all of a sudden, 
you might be launch you might actually be getting thoughtfully aggressive about launching new shit. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. And it, it and it's you know what it's it's one of these things where this is probably one of my favorite ones is that I think people are too precious with their innovations, right? <laughs> they b- believe it's so much like their career is riding on it, which unfortunately sometimes it is, but. The, the reality is if you actually, um, in this scenario, what we're just saying is launch it before it's ready. If it's, it, cause there's a good chance it's going to help somebody right now. Right. And, um, yeah. don't, don't worry about dotting the I and crossing the T's with it, but really this is the way you should be doing innovation anyway. Right. You should launch it early to your super consumers or your best customers or people who, you know, um, will give you the feedback to perfect it. And, and I think it's this, this notion of, um, I think it's like the vast majority of innovations fail when, when Nielsen did a big study about it because the CFO cuts off funding for it in part because the <laughs> expectation is so built up, right? Like, oh, it's gotta be perfect. It's gotta be perfect. It's gonna be a huge marketing launch. You launch it and then you're in the red from a cash flow perspective. And if it doesn't take off right away, which not every innovation does, then it's like, you know, let's cut, cut bait and move on from it. Whereas, you know, we, we, we talk about the Tesla example of, you know, people criticize them for their full self-driving software. It's like, oh, you know, it's going to, it's causing this and that. It's like, there is no way the smartest engineers can perfect full self-driving in a vacuum. It has to be perfected alongside consumers on the road. Absolutely. And so that's, that's effectively what they're doing is they're going to, they're going to throw it out there. It's pretty darn good. It's going to get better with their feedback every time someone uses it. And that gets back to this idea of the data flywheel, right? Um, The data flywheel is more important than the near-term innovation you're going to launch anyway. And that's what people don't understand, right? As we've talked about is that we're going to get so much more. The data flywheel. The data flywheel, the in, actually the business model innovation of your data flywheel is so much more valuable than any individual new product or service you're about to launch, and that Amen. is the reason why COVID nineteen, notwithstanding or not, you should get your stuff out there ahead of time. And again, it's it's the it, you know what's interesting for me as as a writer and a consultant, it's. Um, one of the best ways I find to just talk to prospective clients or rejuvenate relations with old clients is like, hey, I'm working on something not ready. Will you take a look at it and give me feedback, right? And usually yeah. the feedback is awesome and it sparks a dialogue and you know who knows where it goes with it. But it, it, it always just tends to work out versus like, oh, it's it's been perfectly polished. And then and then when you hold it too precious, because you have perfectly polished it, you're not that open to feedback at that point, right? right. <laughs> yeah. That's the irony of it. Well, and you know, this is something that I think the tech industry and the software industry has generally gotten right, although it's different today because of the cloud. And that's this notion of a beta program, right? Yep. In some ways, the cloud means your product's always in a beta program because, of course, you, could, you you roll out new functionality overnight. It's not like, you know, if you remember, I think it was the biggest product launch uh, in technology software history, which was Windows 95, you know, Mm -hmm. and they launch a thing and you got to buy that (laughs) thing and then you got to stick diskettes or or, we must have been at CDs by that point. But but now, of course, whether it's Tesla with the car or... you know, name your software company, um, they're they're pushing out new shit all the time because of the cloud. I think what, what we can now do to put a fine point on this is if there's innovation in our pipeline that for some reason we're thinking about launching later in the year, A, it might make a difference uh, somehow. So there's, mm-hmm. 
it's worth having that conversation in, in the context of C-19, can we help? But even if it can't, maybe a, a, a an early beta or an advanced beta type program might be something that super consumers would For consider sure. right now. Be- For sure. Because it's something new to play with at a time where things are kind of down t- uh, uh, and they might have more time to play with your new shit is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. People are bored now. <laughs> they, they've already watched Tiger King or whatever they're watching on Netflix. Oh, movie. God. I mean, it's, it's the whole... I watched two episodes of that and I went, <laughs> I can't. This is like watching a slow motion <laughs> Kardashian-esque train wreck of, I mean... Yeah, I got We're through terrible half an people episode. that we love that shit, right? <laughs> that's a terrible thing that that's so popular, isn't it? <laughs> well, that, that was the thing. I remember talking to um, Patty McCord, who was the the head of HR, the chief talent officer at Netflix, and that was the thing that she. I, I always stuck in my head was like she realized Netflix was about um, uh, the, about the inside that people like junk food TV. Like people, you know, the, the whole idea when, when they realized that you could start to see what your viewing history was and including employees, like she would talk about how like, um, uh, you know, the people who work there would have like movies and paraphernalia on their desk. And it was always a highfalutin Oscar movies. But the reality yeah. is we like junk food TV. We like stuff that's trashy and whatever it is. And, you know, I mean, I, is the bachelor, is it the most popular <laughs> show on TV? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, but I, shit, I people love all that shit, right? <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. We, we, you know, we are who we are and just got to own up to it and stuff. So, <laughs> so, but anyway, it is an interesting time. And uh, yeah. as another note, um, and I don't have data in front of me, but I do know, having lived through it myself, that downturns can be a very powerful time to be launching new categories and products. Yes. Because yeah. to your point, Eddie, it's quieter. People aren't doing as much, right? So our super consumers might not be getting talked to or getting offers for anything from our traditional competitors. Yep. Well, and 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 I think I think um, what and what's interesting to me is you know sometimes new categories we've talked about um, it is more on the order of magnitude of you're creating a new element on the periodic table, and sometimes it's a small tweak, right? That, I love your um, brain. Just, <laughs> I, just love I love yours too, sorry. brother. But like, you know, we, we talked about in the, in the article, the, the second piece of, hey, let's try some new revenue and pricing models. It can be the same product or service, but monetized and sold differently. And that transforms it. And, you know, we, we talk about the example of, um, you know, how, hey, you know what? Um, it's not just a restaurant idea, but if you are still selling in principally a transaction-based way of I offer, like you said, Windows, right? 95, you got to buy it, pay for it, done. Come back to me in a couple of years. Like, and, and, and as you said, the tech industry is led in this way, but it's the reality is, is that the subscription model or gift cards can be done in so many other categories. And so, you know, with, I think like Blaze Pizza, we talked about in the article, you know, really leaning hard into gift cards, kind of an obvious thing, but again, Mm-hmm. A great example of being radically generous. If you buy a $20 gift card, you get a free pizza in the next one out there. And, and you know, it's the companies that the restaurants that have a strong delivery and or drive through business are the ones that are, you know, doing better in this regard. And what's, what's interesting about pizza, um, I always call it, you know, like uh, from a B2C business, uh, legal narcotics are always good businesses to be in and pizza is one of them and stuff, right? But like, you know, uh, for them... It's probably not hard for any of the relevant pizza franchises to say, how about I get you on a subscription every Friday night is pizza night? 
yeah. and I'm just going to send you stuff. And by the way, you sign up for it. I'm going to send you, you know, uh, a new pizza you haven't even tried free on us and stuff, right? Because uh, to your point, it's the subscription. Um, that's what you care about. And you can launch well, and new innovation. You just that, gave me an sure. idea. Um, many of us are having drinking parties and dinner parties <laughs> over Zoom or, yeah. you know, I prefer Zoom, but, and, um, of course, there's an interesting thing about a cocktail or a dinner. You know, we had, we had, uh, Easter dinner mm -hmm. in, uh, in our family on Zoom, right? So anyway, the pizza folks, they could say, Hey, listen, every Friday night is, uh, you know, digital dinner, digital pizza night. Because the fun thing about dinner over Zoom is we all have friends and family who don't live where we live. Yep. Well, if, if the event is, you know, on Easter, it's only the people who are around here that get to do shit, but the family members are, are well, now everybody can play, right? Absolutely. So my point is, I think there's a very good chance, Eddie, we're going to see these digital cocktail parties, these digital pizza parties, dinner parties, maybe Netflix watching parties. I, I know people who are sitting on Zoom watching TV together yeah, yeah, and shit, totally, right? So totally. so a pizza company could sell a subscription service to do this, I guess is my point, right? Well, you got to get your buddy, uh, Eric Yuan, to jump on this. And, you know, like when he sees these, you know, uh, Zoom cocktail or happy hours or pizza nights or whatever, it's like not hard to get one of these physical companies to say, hey, raise my hand. I'll, I'll be your provider for that. And, you know, our, our mutual friend, uh, Rafi Mohammed, he, his great article, what, what how to save the restaurant industry uh, in HBR was, uh, frankly, leaning into beverages and booze, right? I mean, the restaurants, as I understand it, um, are made or broken on the profits on uh, beverages, specifically alcohol sales and stuff. And, you know, the Nielsen data says that alcohol sales have gone through the roof, as you might expect. Well, and that's just me. I mean, I'm <laughs> They're just counting my consumption. <laughs> they, they, they smooth out the uh, Santa Cruz uh, data bump anomaly there or whatever. It is. Yeah. I, like, uh, early on in this thing, I read an article that whiskey kills the virus. So I've been <laughs> <laughs> killing the virus. Well, I, I, I'm glad that you're healthy because it seems like it's working for you. It's uh, so. Oh, I do need to back off. <laughs> it's time to back. Now that we're this deep into it, it's time to scale back a little. <laughs> It'll lose its potency. <laughs> no, but like these 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 uh pizza companies, these food companies, you know, it it it's it's one of these things where um you know you have the fixed cost of the delivery service and you, the the trick is what is the next thing that you can add on to the delivery that just drives margin through the roof there? And mm -hmm. you know, and if it was like, hey, um, you need K cups for coffee in the morning. Let's throw a, a box of those in. If it if it is a bottle of wine, or if it is, you know, all, all the indulgent things that people lean into. Chocolate is another one. Like chocolate um, has been a really difficult uh, uh, e commerce model because of the you know it's sensitive to temperature and the like and stuff. But yeah, when it gets to your house. It's all screwed up, right? Totally, totally. I mean, this this is my thing. Like I, I've always I've been waiting for one. A thoughtful company to buy Domino's Pizza because you know they're a pizza business. They call it a tech business. No, they they are the last mile. If you buy Domino's, then you have solved the last mile from a delivery perspective. And you know I, I've argued it could be Kroger that could buy them. It could be a Nestle that could buy them. But for all I know, it could be Zoom that buys them and says, you know what, <laughs> <laughs> I want access to these uh, wine happy hours that are going on. And when I see one, well, then we'll call my buddies at Domino's that we just acquired and send you a pizza and some some goodies and the like and stuff. So. 
Well, as crazy as it sounds, who thought Amazon was going to go buy Whole yeah, Foods, yeah, right? Exactly. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And then I love uh, one of the other things we talked about in the HBR article was new kinds of customer acquisition. Uh, I got to share with you one of my favorite local ones because you got me on food. Uh, I'm starting to get a little dumpling fat. (laughs) And that's because there are these, uh, I think it's just two guys, if I'm not mistaken, young entrepreneurs here in in Santa Cruz. And they go to this part of, uh, they go to this place that does uh, pop-up restaurants. Mm. And they, so they're every Wednesday night and they make homemade hand rolled dumplings. Oh, wow. And they are from, from the Lord above. I mean, they are, you know, <laughs> angels sing and like butterflies fly. And when you eat this stuff, it's just amazing. Mm. And we've gotten really into going and it's a fun experience because it's super casual and they got great beer on tap. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a a lot of university students and a fun vibe and a cool location. And also, anyway, we've gotten deeply wedded to this. And I would say, yeah, we probably go at least once a month, sometimes twice a month. So we, sometimes we get to, you know, one, one every other week type of thing. Anyway, long story longer, this shit happens. So they say, okay, on this night, we're going to still be doing dumplings for pickup. On this night, you can order frozen dumplings to cook your own. So that's the first thing they do. I love it. Then they realize, oh, wait a minute. The farmer's markets are still open. So they get spots in, I'm not sure how many, but at least two or three farmer's markets Mm -hmm. And they're now selling the frozen ones there, mm. and and so I talked to one of the uh, the co owners, the dumpling dudes, <laughs> just the other day at the farmers market, and I said to him, "Hey, look, how's your business doing?" You know, I was telling him we're eating dumplings through the to, through the crisis, <laughs> and how much he's made a difference to us, and we've given them away to friends, and this and that. We're having this whole chat, and um, and he said their business is up. Wow, I think to your point. When you're in kind of, I, I think what's been interesting is that there's clearly been um, a package goods bump when people have been pantry loading and stuff and, you know, preparing for the zombie apocalypse and, you know, you know, like everyone's a prepper now. Right. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. but I, I think, you know, what's, what'll be interesting. I, I would bet that there's going to be a commensurate bump, hopefully when God willing, all of this stuff is, you know, over and vaccines are out or whatnot, that all of that stuff that went into your pantry loading goes back to a food bank because you didn't really want to eat that stuff in the first place. And stuff, right? It's there because if you had no other alternative, then that's what you knew it could last forever and a half. Right. You mean that like, what's that? Uh, aren't there some like cream of corns that are really nasty? Oh yeah. Yeah. And- yeah. Yeah, you mean, know, there's there's some there's some nasty can shit, right? Yeah, sort of scoopy goopy. You know, when when you're a beggar, you can't be choosy. But when you do have options again, then you're probably not going to turn back to that. But like, you know, it, it's I, I I think that we're probably at the phase now where people are tired of eating the same stuff, right? Like, you know, um, what what the dumpling guys have figured out is that I, I think it's like the average American household, whoever is preparing for the food, if I recall correctly, like there's like three to four go-to meals that they know they can make and it's going to go over with the family. Okay. Or fine or well. Right. 
And we are by nature, and there are exceptions, but variety seeking. And so people are going to get tired of what they want, what they've been having. And now is the time to try some new stuff to your point. And, you know, what those guys are doing is figuring out, I, I love the frozen aspect of it. I, I think one of the unintended consequences of this is that people will be buying an extra refrigerator or freezer to keep stuff around. Right. Right. Yeah. This has been much to the chagrin of the frozen food industry is that um, when things are flash frozen, they're actually, you know, quality is still pretty good and it's still got some nutrition, but it has that negative um, association with it. But what these dumpling guys have figured out is that that's exactly what people should be doing is you should, when you, when you order food, actually, this would help solve the Grubhub and Postmates economics, which suck right now, right? Is you should be selling ready to eat food right then. Uh, another pack that you can reheat later on and another one that's frozen and that should be the way that it goes. You know, the other thing they've done, which is a really smart touch. So they, they the frozen bags are vacuum sealed, right? So yep. boom, they make it and, and freeze that shit in a vacuum sealed bag. And then they're, one of the things they're famous for is their dipping sauce. And it's it's hard to describe, but it's just the right mix of there's a little bit of sweet and some sour and a little bit of a kick. And it just, it, it just, it's perfect. Like uh, everything they do. So of course they are uh, thoughtful about giving you the right amount of sauce to yeah. go with it. They're not expecting you to buy it. They're not expecting that you're going to have your own or whatever, whatever. And so you can see that they're trying to do things along those lines to capture the product as soon as it's made, yeah. freeze it, and then give you the other component of it as part of the deal so that when you're home and you do it on your own, you get as close to the authentic experience, at least from a taste point of view, as you would uh, when you're with them. Well, little did those guys know that they're going to be blown up on your top 100 iTunes podcast for being, you know, the the barons of business strategy, because what they have figured out (laughs) is that cost of goods for dumplings probably way higher than the cost of goods for sauce. And that sauce, you know, I, I think it was like, I think A1 steak sauce, I think, has like pharmaceutical margins, if I remember someone telling me correctly, because they they have no competition and it's just, you know, the raw ingredients are nothing aside from the bottle. But like sauce is effectively um, like software, training, services, all the stuff that we've talked about of low categories that have low marginal costs which should be given away gener- radically generously um, as a way of acquiring customers. And if, you know, imagine if uh, they kind of went to market using your insight and observation of like, we have great dumplings, but we're going to be v- ultra generous with the sauce. I mean, for all I know, that's what makes, you know, Chick-fil-A. So p- part of their secret ingredients is they offer a, a cornucopia of sauces that come with it and stuff. Right. And sauces add, you know, obviously flavor, but then they are cheap. It's really and cheap. we love sauces. We do. We sauces are awesome. We have this. Oh fuck! What's it called now? I think it's just called bitchin sauce. <laughs> I've seen that one. I think. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. it's just called bitchin sauce, and it's in a plastic, you know, thingy, and you can put it on anything, man. You can put it on like a sandwich bread, yeah. or you can like you could use it with all kinds of stuff, right? It's like it was, we're now into this bitchin' sauce. Yeah. So yeah, sauces. Where's the special sauce? Well, and so that 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 to me is the 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 question is where's the special sauce for you and your category, right? What is the um, high value to the consumer but low marginal cost thing that you should be upping the ante and giving more of away to sell what you currently make. And that, that that's the part that I just think about as um 
you know, uh, the, the, all the clever things that people can do to acquire new customers. I mean, it, it, it is to your point, like this is a time when people are not on autopilot. They are, they're questioning every fundamental assumption they have in their life and, you know, what they have historically bought, uh, whether it's B2B or B2C is not a given that they're going to buy it when they come out of it. And so if you are not aggressively acquiring customers now, you're going to be out of luck when things go back to quote unquote normal and you realize, wait, where'd half my customers go? Well, some other radically generous company just kind of took them away or they shifted away to a different category uh, because you were uh, slow on the uptake with it. And and this is a big thing that's important. It's It's like, we still have businesses that we want to build. We still have categories that we want to create and design. You know, it goes back to where we were at the beginning. It's okay to go for it right now. Yeah, it is. Totally. Building, look, building successful, thriving businesses that serve and excite and delight customers and uh, create value um, uh, and, and economic outcomes for their founders and good jobs and shit. This we need a lot of that. Yes, yes. <laughs> and so, if you are in a position to be strengthening your business, particularly in the context of radical generosity right now, I mean, mm-hmm. we, first of all, it's the fucking human thing to do. Yes. But if you're if you're not being that way, you know, the world's going to see you in a negative light, right? Mm-hmm. But all that said, this is a fantastic time to be thoughtfully aggressive, to be trying new things, to be trying pricing models, to be looking for where your secret, you know, free sauce is, to being radically generous, to, to if you're a product company, can we get people on some kind of a subscription? Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can we reimagine what we do in the context of helping with this crisis? Uh, you know, there's lots of big questions we can ask ourselves through this lens of radical generosity and thoughtfully aggressive and, and realizing it's okay to be creating or building our categories in our businesses. Totally. Well, it, this, it, you know, what comes to mind is our, our mutual friends at Hydrofacial, you know, Clint Carnell, the CEO and Lisa Fawcett, the CMO, you know, um, kind of one of the things that they're launching now is this, uh, what do we talk about? It's the, we believe one of the first ever, or if the first ever reusable, comfortable copper face masks, right? And, you know, I think I remember we, you have one and I got one and they, I, I really like them. They feel great. They don't fog up my glasses they're incredible. Um, and they're reusable for up to 30 days. And, you know, I, I just think it's, it's, it, not only do you have the eco-friendly aspect of it that you're not throwing them away, but it's really smart because I don't think, I mean, it's going to take something different to get people to come back to a medical spa or to go get a facial or all of the medical aesthetics and that kind of spa industry. Like people are going to have to wear face masks, masks when they deliver the service, I think is probably one of the re- you know requirements for things to kind of get back to normal with it. And for these, you know, so it's not only just a good thing because there's a shortage of these face masks, masks and all the PPE that the, you know, frontline people need, but it's a logical strategy, um, to kind of get their industry back up and running again. And, you know, and what better way to do it than they would, you know, obviously they've historically done it. They've, they're creating a new category in the space here, which I think is awesome. Well, nobody's going to go for a hydrofacial unless the person performing the service is wearing a mask for some meaningful amount of time. But the other thing that I find fascinating about what Clinton, Lisa, and the team did is pre-C19, mm-hmm. they are growing faster than they've ever grown. They're tracking to have their biggest year ever. 
up and to the right, the hydrofacial business. People are loving it. it the category's taken off. They're growing, growing, growing. And then bam, they literally are shut down. They legally cannot operate. Yeah. And then really, in a matter of weeks, they stand this business up. They have the it's idea. Incredible. It's incredible. Right? They figure out how to, in their language, impregnate <laughs> cotton with copper. Yeah. Which I think is brilliant. And the copper yeah. has so many antibacterial qualities, yeah. right? I mean, this thing is amazing. And, and, and you know what? What's, and it's reusable 30 times. 30 times and lower cost per use. And well, you know, what, what the part that I think is really critical to what you said is that um, having spoken to some of these, their super consumers who are, they're, they're fanatical, right? As soon as they get the all clear sign, there's going to be a line out the door for them to get these facials because they want the gunk out of their face. And the responsible thing to do would be to make sure that that happens in a safe manner, right? And I think for them to, because like, I, I, you know, businesses like that, when they were the, the, the trajectory that they were on, um, you know, again, it, it, there's going to be a, a line out the door, like nothing's fundamentally changed about the, the trajectory and the demand for them, but it is imperative that they allow that demand to reopen in a safe manner. And this is what would enable them to do that. And I think, I just think it's really uh, quite responsible um, and, and profitable for them as well too. So, I mean, I, I know I, I want to get these to all the uh, healthcare folks that I know um, and, and just, or actually all my family, I want to make sure that they have these and they can be comfortable. Yeah. They're so comfortable. And that's they're, the they're part soft. that you identify. They're like right? a comfy, they're a comfy sock. Yeah. I mean, they don't, I mean, they feel when you put it on, it feels great yeah. on your face. It's like the <laughs> compression wear. And I think you were talking about, right. It doesn't leave like the, the, the nurses and the doctors who are wearing the masks all day, like their faces just look all bruised and chewed up, chewed yeah. up afterwards. And this doesn't feel like it would do that, which I think is great. So. And then another thing along these same lines that I see uh, IP-based businesses, you know, if you're a, a consulting company or a publishing company mm -hmm. or media company and, you know, in one way or another, I think all companies should be content or IP-based businesses. But uh, now's the time to get radically generous with your intellectual property and, and your content, right? And we see, uh, you know, my friend John Berghoff at Exchange, they're giving, you know, they're giving away a, a, a whole bunch of their ip around how to architect what they call uh you know exponential change in companies through through powerful conversations you know so they lead workshops and they do all these i don't know what they do they get everybody together and think big thoughts and answer big questions and you know the big companies hire them to do all this yep. off-site thinking shit right <laughs> so you know one of the interesting things eddie is if you look at what Tucker Max is doing in terms of, you know, trying to give away some meaningful percentage of their IP and my friend um, uh, in terms of how to write books and my friend John Berghoff at Exchange trying to give away some meaningful percentage of their IP on how to do corporate workshops and create exponential breakthroughs and all the good stuff that they do. You know, it really seems that um, IP-based businesses in particular uh, are in a position to uh, be radically generous. Oh, for sure. And, and I think one of the things that has gotten a lot of prominence are obviously IP businesses and the valuations that they get in the marketplace. And, you know, as everybody is trying to figure out how do you reposition themselves to be that, the reality is it, 
it it's, doesn't have to be lipstick on a pig that every business in every category probably is an IP driven business and they just don't realize it. And the IP could be resident in how they manufacture stuff or how they sell stuff or uh, how they do marketing in a clever way. But I, I think the reality is no matter how good your product is, um, you need somebody, I always, you know, the super consumers as I call them, they know how to use your category better than a lot of people who make the category do, right? And that's IP, right? The ability to know when the right time to use it, it, it'd be like um, uh, uh, an expert golfer with a golf bag, right? They know what club to use in what circumstance and how much to use at what time. That's all IP. You cannot um, discount that and say, I'm just a manufacturer of golf clubs. No, you are in the IP business. And if you don't understand that, and um, then you're missing out on stuff. But also, you're probably, uh, as we wrote about in the article, you're missing out on one of the greatest ways to acquire new customers, which is to be radically generous with your IP, which doesn't have to be expensive cost of good stuff. It's it's the stuff that um, allows people to get better joy and uh, greater benefits out of the stuff they already have. That's the beauty of it. It's, 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 you don't have to be, you know, Elon Musk sending out software updates and now your car goes, you know, longer and faster and like that, ma- like magic. Obviously, that's that kind of an IP, but to get somebody who has already purchased something to say, you know what? If you only knew about this particular feature, then, or this particular way to use it, you'd get a lot more value out of it and you get a lot of happy customers that way too. Well, and the other sort of aha is a guy who has spent, you know, the better part of 30 years in the IP business. And particularly now at this stage of the game, um, what I've learned is things that I take for granted as obvious as, well, you know, everybody knows that about, you know, marketing or category design or podcasting or whatever whatever the thing that I might happen to know something about that might be helpful. What I've learned is, well, um, Maybe not. And yeah, sure, if, if you're a multi-time CMO, then you've learned a lot of things that, that you know, uh, uh, the 101 stuff is not valuable to you. But you know what? If you're a 27-year-old first-time CMO, um, there's a lot of stuff that I take for granted that, um, that that gal might really benefit from using. And so I guess my point is, the other aha I've had is... Uh, there's a lot of IP that many of us have, particularly those of us who've been around for a while or, or of those of us in the technology or who have significantly advanced IP sitting around their products or services that could be very helpful, that really wouldn't cost you much to give away, um, that could be incredibly beneficial and we might not even realize. It's one of my learnings in the last couple of years. Oh, for sure. And, and I, I think that's the beauty of, I think, what it means to be a human, right? Is we are, by definition, IP factories. And, and <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and, and it, whether it's in business or in leisure or in family or relationships, I mean, I, I, I think about like um, one of the uh, great pieces of IP that I've done in the food and beverage category, which, and, and snacking, which you don't think about as an IP driven business, is that. The best way to purchase and deploy snacks for raising teenagers and teenage boys and stuff, right? Which is like, I mean, people are like, what in the world are you talking about? I don't care about that. I just want to, you know, make the make it taste better or squeeze more cost out of it. Or what, I'm like, no, the, the reality is um, if uh, one of the, I mean, we, people call them hacks, right? Like an IP driven business idea is when you are a parent and you're struggling, I'm dealing with this with teenagers of my own and you want to 
be aware of what's going on in your teenager's life, which means that you have to have the teen and their friends over at your place, right? Now, um, what that also means is they have to want to be there, so you have to feed them. And guess what? Um, what do they want? They want pizza. Ordering a bunch of pizzas for the entire baseball team that came over, that can get pretty expensive. But, you know, uh, a couple of dozen hot dogs, pretty darn cheap. And they're almost just as happy with that as they would be with, you know, hey, we're all going to the drive through at McDonald's or Panera or whatever it might be. And like all of these types of insights of, you know, I, I think that's the part that people uh, – uh, don't give it short shrift. They call it insights or whatever. It's IP. It's experience-driven IP wisdom that maybe you don't get the bundle in a software package like a lot of tech companies do, but it's the kind of stuff that just generates so much uh, uh, benefit and consumer surplus that that's the way that you acquire people. It's like, hey, you know, um, did you know that if you use it this way, you're going to get a whole lot more value out of it? And I remember this is a, a mentor of mine taught me this is using um, IP to sell against your category. <laughs> so one of the things he would- What always, do you mean by that? Yeah. Like, so this guy, uh, Steve Carlotti, he was a very senior partner in McKinsey and he, he took over the Cambridge group for a couple of years. And uh, he would always say, um, one of the best ways to uh, generate new business as a consultant um, was to tell a client not to buy your services. And a lot of it was like, you know, um, Someone would come up to him and say, hey, uh, I, I'd like to, you know, I think I need some consulting help and this and that for this particular problem. And he would do a couple of things. He would say, you know what? Um, this is not the right use case for consultants. So I would, if I were you, I would not spend the money. And by the way, if you, before you spend the money, I know what the answer is. Here's the answer. Go do this first. Now, if I've, if you, after me convincing you not to use consulting for this use case or giving you the answer, you still want to do work, fine. But uh, he would always say um, the, the shock value and I think the generosity of saying, no, 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 I don't want to take your money right now because it's not the best ROI for you uh, is the kind of stuff that generates long-term relationships with it and stuff. And so I, I just think that um, customer acquisition, uh, people think of it as a very transactional thing. If you think about it from an IP perspective, but also being radically generous and thoughtfully aggressive uh, as the banner of this, it can actually yield far greater customer acquisition at a far higher ROI because a lot of those people that he, he talked about, uh, we get turned away, uh, ended up being clients for life. I can't believe you're bringing this up. Uh, for This is a secret that I rarely talk about, but um, there's two things going on and, and it fits perfectly in the theme of thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous. For years and years, I've used the no sell sell. And particularly if you sell high-end products or services, right? The minute you say, well, you know, I'm not sure we're the right fit for you. People's heads snap back, right? So that's the first piece. The no, and I've always found the no-sell sell is incredibly powerful and, and I've used it for years. Um, so that's point A. But what I like, and that's a technique. It's, it's a technique. And you know, you could call that manipulative. You could call it what you want. I actually, for, for me, I don't think it is. For me, it's part of sort of testing how much they might want to work with me. Or back when I was in the software business, it was also sort of testing, pressure testing kind of their level of interest. And also they expect you to just smash the competition. And, you know, when you say, like when I was back at Mercury, when you say, well, you know, maybe you should go talk to BMC. They're like, well, what? 
because the, the whole, all they're expecting you to do is smash the competition. But that's a technique. Uh, I think it's a wise technique. It's a thoughtfully aggressive technique. The interesting thing, if you do it like anything, if you use it as a disingenuous technique, it's going to bite you in the ass. But if you use that as a thoughtfully aggressive approach in the context of what you're describing, which is thoughtfully, uh, which is radically generous, that is to say, in the conversation, when I talk to a prospect or a customer, what I really want to do is at the end of the conversation, I want to feel like I made a difference. And more importantly, they want to say I made a difference, whether we work together, whether they buy my carbodingulator, whatever it is, right? And so in the conversation, if you're sort of coming from a place with a prospect that says, how do I make a contribution to this person around whatever it is they're talking to me about doing that will be valuable to them regardless of whether we work together? And in that context, I may give them in this, in this example, some free consulting or some free IP or whatever it is. Um, uh, and it may or may not lead to a sale, but my goal is to make a difference and explore the possibility of working together. Uh, but I'm not sort of the traditional salesperson kind of banging on them, right? And so coming from that no-sell-sell, particularly with a radical generosity mindset, completely transforms the kind of conversations we can have with prospects and customers. Totally, totally. And, and, and I think it's, it's um, the, the litmus test you can use to make sure that your motives are clean or pure, so to speak, and or that you are have that right balance between thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous is, you know, you, you think about what is the way that would be the most radically generous uh, act that I could do with my category, my product. And I think about, you know, what, what Zoom has done, you know, obviously with the shelter in place with COVID um, offering uh, Zoom for free for K through 12, such a great thing, radically generous. It, it, it's going to be memorable. Um, it's, it's probably one of the things that has the highest, um, amount of admiration. I don't know if that's the right word to use to, to generate that. And I think that's the kind of thing that you should be thinking about because it's, it, people will remember. And by the way, those K through 12, uh, students, um, guess what? They're going to be habituated to, you know what? There might be other substitutes. That I'm just used to zoom and you know what, that's what I'm going to do with it. And I think that's, that's the beauty of um, more than one thing can be true. You can be radically generous and that same act can be beneficial for your company in the long run. Um, I do think the sequence matters that you have to go into it, be radically generous first. And then like, well, you know, within that, what are the ways in which I can do? So that's a, a double benefit and a win-win. But um, it's it's a fine line, don't you think? I mean, it, it, I think people, uh, to your point, um, if you're looking for a tip or a tactic, then that's when things go awry. When you're really looking for a North Star, um, again, that's why we keep harping back to the tactics that we talk about in the article. We think they're great. We think they'll be helpful. But all you really need to do is hold on for dear life with that radically generous and thoughtfully aggressive um, uh, set of reins, and you're going to do fine. You're going to do the right thing. Absolutely. And, and I, I think it all sits in a context of, um, hey, this is business. It's okay to make money. People making money is a good thing. People, uh, to quote George Bush, put, putting food on their family, that's a good thing. Having healthy, thriving businesses that create and deliver value and that get paid for that value. Um, and, and so the, their shareholders, their constituents, their employees, their founders and executives, 
can can achieve a level of uh, financial security. Um, that's that's a wonderful thing. If if you can do good while doing well, if that's the, I don't know what's I always get that expression <laughs> wrong, but whatever that expression is, make money while making a difference. How about that? Yeah. That's a good thing. Now, I think in the situation we're in now with uh, this crisis, I think we have to look at it with a very um, critical lens um, because I don't think we actually want to be pariahs and I don't think we want to be profiting off of misery in any way, shape or form. And at the same time, we want uh, part of what this um, C-19 crisis has exposed is problems in the uh, medical supply chain yeah. is is problems. Now we're starting to see some some issues in the food supply chain. Um, and so people can make a difference in that regard. People can make a difference in, in, in creating vaccines. People can make a difference in testing. People can make a difference in, in, in medical procedures. This guitar company that, that created this covering for, for patients so that when doctors do the intubation, they're not getting sprayed on from the, the patient. They're protecting the doctor and the, and, and elongating the, uh, the 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 length with which they can use the uh, PPE that they're wearing, that's all goodness, and getting paid for that's okay. Yes, we just don't want to be the gouger and the asshole. We want to be making a reasonable profit. So I think right now we have to have a, a finer eye on it to make sure that we're getting this mix of thoughtfully aggressive and radically generous, right? But I don't think we should have any uh, if ends or buts about it entrepreneurial companies, innovative companies making money while helping the world, those two things are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I just don't buy that. Yes. Well, and, and, and I think I think it goes back to, um, I, I always think about, uh, like, growing up in Hawaii, like, you, uh, mango trees are a precious commodity, and, and, and you can have people, like, fighting over them and stuff because if, you know, uh, nothing quite like a good mango from Hawaii, that's when it's ripe in the summer season. And if it falls on the ground, that's the big question is, whose mango is is it right if it you know if it's your tree but it extends over into your neighbor's yard or whatever and stuff but if a mango falls on your property and rolls somewhere else uh, does anybody hear it is it something like that everybody <laughs> hears mango? that's the truth <laughs> <laughs> yeah but like you know it it's really hard to be radically generous with a tree that you haven't taken care of that doesn't bear much fruit right really easy to be radically generous when you've you know the tree is thriving and there's a ton of fruit and you know, there's no way you could eat them all. And if you don't, they're just going to spoil and bugs are going to come. And that's something that you don't want either and stuff. And, and, and I think what we're really talking about is the natural uh, progression of a category queen and someone who's created a category done well, thought about it from that perspective. And what happens is you generate abundance and um, that abundance, um, sometimes you're in a category that has a shelf life and it's just smarter to give it away if you're in the food business, right? Um, uh, but sometimes uh, your abundance like IP um, doesn't really expire. And so you should be that much more generous with it. And, you know, in, in part, um, this is what we talk about and, you know, the better way to acquire customers because you want to keep your CAC and, you know, everything else down is to give away your IP, give away the stuff mm -hmm. that you have a ton of that, you know, would go bad if not, you didn't give it away or uh, could be a better purpose. Don't worry about the opportunity cost, but trust that um, if you have designed a well, ca a category well, and that your offer uh, that you provide uh, has transformative outcomes for your customers, 
you should be like, you know what? If I give this away, you're going to be so hooked on it that you're going to be begging for to pay me for the next time around. And that's the reality of how uh, you should be engaging in customer acquisition, especially in this time, uh, because people will remember that for the life. Yes. People are going to remember what we did as individuals and what we did as brands and companies for a very long time. Yeah. Eddie, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap? No, I, I'm, I'm super psyched about this. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, uh, people will chime in and share other uh, uh, tactics and actions and strategies that are in that radical generosity and thoughtfully aggressive lane so that we can crowdsource our way out of this crisis. Yes. And uh, you and I share many, many things, of course. And one of them is a desire that um, this idea of thoughtfully aggressive and radically uh, generous sparks ideas and thinking and uh, new approaches and hopefully helps companies um, uh, survive. And maybe even, is it okay to say we want our companies to thrive Absolutely. after this? Well, yeah. that's, that's the reality is that no one will begrudge a company thriving and succeeding that is also radically generous. Yes. The other companies that are monopolies that get people people crap on, it's because they lack empathy and they are not radically generous. They've just been thoughtfully aggressive. And so um, I think that the two go in tandem and actually reinforce one another. All right, Eddie Yoon. I know it's corny to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I love you. I love you too, brother. You're amazing. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. All right. We would like to thank the legendary Eddie Yoon himself. Uh, you can visit him at eddiewoodgrow.net on the internet and make sure you pick up a couple hundred thousand copies of his book, Super Consumers. My good friends, onelifefullylived.org, the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. And man, we could use some help on that right now. Onelifefullylived.org. My friends at bottleneck.online have been physical distancing before physical distancing was a thing. Check out the power of a virtual assistant at bottleneck.online. If you're in the B2B space in Silicon Valley, you want to talk to my friends at Atranet, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T, because Atranet has been building legendary B2B websites for over 20 years, A-T-R-E dot N-E-T. If you're in beautiful Australia and you want to do some legendary marketing, visit rapidmedia.com.au for legendary marketing, media, and communications in Australia. And uh, the thought I'll leave you with come from, comes from Winston Churchill, who said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Please stay legendary, stay healthy, stay safe, and until we're together again, follow your different. <laughs>